So if you will, this morning I'll ask you if you'll turn with me to the letter to the churches of Galatia, the book of Galatians chapter 4, and our verses for today will be in verses 4 through 7, a sermon that I've entitled God's Perfect Timing. God's perfect timing. And this will speak not only to God's perfect timing in history to send forth His Son into the world, but it will also talk about God's perfect timing interacting in our lives. God is a God that we describe as being imminent, which means that God is close to us in the person of Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And as he is close with us, he interacts with us as well. As we read the word of God, as we read his word, he is close, he is imminent with us. And so in God's perfect timing, we find things in our life where God shows up in a mighty way. In some way, he demonstrates his love. He demonstrates that he has not left us. He has not forsaken us. Right when sometimes it seems that we're at the end of our rope, it seems like we don't have anywhere else to go. It is like the Lord shows up and says, no, I haven't forgot you, my son. I haven't forgot you, my daughter. And the Lord in his perfect time, his timing shows that he loves us and that he wants us to prosper as we grow in him. So God's perfect timing isn't just about God the Son stepping into human history. It is about God's perfect timing in all of our lives. But what I want you to do is I want you to take your Bible, if you haven't, I want you to turn back one chapter to chapter 3. This is where one of those places when chapter and verses as they are separated in our English Bible, sometimes obscure the, a, a more robust reading. And so we're going we're gonna to just peer back into chapter 3 of the book of Galatians, and we'll look at verse 28, and we'll read on through to verse 7. But our focal point this morning will be from verses 4 through 7. But if you will, I'll ask you, let's stand together as we read God's Word in this sermon that I have entitled, if I had to put a title to it, God's Perfect Timing. All right, so chapter 3, verse 28 says this. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is either, neither male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent his spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words that we have read this morning and this assurance that we have in Jesus and Jesus alone. We are thankful, God, because of your grace that we are adopted 
And we are now sons and daughters for those who are in Christ, for those who are saved and regenerate or redeemed. Father, we are adopted, Lord, into your family. You've grafted us in. And Lord, we are eternally appreciative of that. And we raise our hands and hearts to you today and give you thanks and adoration. So Father, I pray that as we work through these scriptures this morning, for the one who might be coming today and and are going through some difficult time in their life, Lord, know that you are there with them. Father, for the one who doesn't know you today, who's never confessed their sins to a holy and righteous God, Father, I pray today would be the day of salvation for them. Call them unto yourself, God, as only you can do. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, today our theme is, is love. If you have been following the Adventists or the Advent tradition, today is the theme of, of love. But then, isn't every day that theme for a child of God in Jesus? Isn't that every, every day has something to do with the God who is a loving and just God? And by the way, we have these constant reminders in our life of God's, of, of God's love seen by His grace and His mercy to us. And sometimes, even as we pray, we, we pray something like, thank you, God, for your grace and your mercy. And sometimes we just we gloss over those two words without really just thinking about what, what they mean. And, and if we really were to think about those two terms, we could get lost in trying to comprehend this grace and mercy. And this love by God is seen through His grace and mercy to us. Listen, we have opportunities for, all of, for many of us today who have, who have children, you know, to, opportunities to be able to love on our children and raise our children in the ways of the Lord. For those who are grandparents, you get the opportunity to, to kiss your grandchild or to hug your grandchild or, or however that looks. And, and so the Lord has blessed us in so many ways. In so many ways, God has blessed us and given us opportunity to raise some little ones in the admonition and, and the truth of who Jesus is. And in some ways, I find myself asking this question, why God? Why have you blessed me so? You ever ask that question? God, why have you blessed me? And why does it seem that others go through such adversity and here? Lord, you have blessed me with, with, with so much. And even though to answer that, you would probably be well equipped to say that, yes, I've gone through suffering too. I've gone through trials and tribulations, but God has still blessed me so. And how do we answer that question? Well, here's how we answer the question. Because the character and nature of God is that he is infinitely good. Somebody say amen. He is infinitely good. And I cannot help with the words of John, who wrote this in the first letter that bears his name, 1 John chapter 4, verse 16. It says, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. And the main highlighted characteristic of God is found in this next phrase that says, God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in him and God abides in him. And so if I'm reading that letter right, 
Here's what the cool thing about that verse is. Is that a theology? Did he say that anymore? Cool? Theological term. This is what the, the cool thing about this verse is if the love of God abides in you and me, and if it abides in us, then we cannot help but to show others that love, right? If the love of God abides in us, and we call ourselves followers of Jesus, we have been saved, we have been redeemed, the Holy Spirit is living and abiding in us, and part of the characteristic of God is that He is a God of love, then it should follow that we show love to one another. Now, turn your attention back to the book of Galatians. And hopefully it hasn't left your gaze, but I want to set the scene for you. I want to demonstrate through God's Word what was happening behind the scenes when Paul wrote this letter to the churches, plural, of Galatia. A few contextual things to remember about this letter that Paul wrote. We know that it was written, as I mentioned, by the hand of the Apostle Paul. There's few scholars in the world who will contest that. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter somewhere around 48 to 49 AD. Think about that for a minute. Just a mere 16 years after the events surrounding the death of the Lord Jesus. Just a mere 16 years separated this writing from what happened to Jesus on the cross. There are a number of books of antiquity today who come nowhere near that accuracy. And yet we find it through the hand of the Apostle Paul as he is as he has been inspired or moved by the Holy Spirit to write this particular letter to the people, the Christ followers in, in Galatia. In our best estimation, Paul wrote these letters to churches, plural, in the southern part of Galatia, who he visited, according to the book of Acts, on his first missionary journey. But the tone of the letter is one of frustration and one of concern. You remember a couple weeks ago when, we, uh, preached on, when I preached on peace. And there was a phrase that the Apostle Paul used eight times in its totality. And the phrase was, grace to you and peace of God through Jesus Christ. You remember that phrase? Eight different times. I hope you went home and looked that phrase up. And he uses it in the book of Galatians. But he also follows it up with this. After he says... Grace to you and peace, and peace of God through Christ Jesus or through Jesus Christ. He says this in verse 6. I am astonished. I'm surprised that you are so quickly discerning him who called you to the grace of Christ and are now turning to a different gospel. I remember this fellow this past week who was, um, he was trying to sound a little super spiritual. He's trying to sound like he knew what he was talking about. And he was up here and the rest of us are down here in terms of our scholarship, in terms of knowing the Bible. And he said, if the Apostle Paul was alive today, the churches would be getting a letter. That's what he said. 
And I thought to myself, Sir, you have a letter. You don't, you don't have to get a special letter to the churches of Martin County or the churches of, of whatever county you live in. We have a letter. This is God's letter to the churches. This is what God has said to the churches. And it was just as relevant then as it is now. And so Paul wrestles with this reality that there's some people who call themselves followers of Jesus who have distorted the gospel. And what have they done to distort the gospel? Well, they would say there are other things that you must do, which is legalism, in order to find favor with God and to order to be called a Christian. Today, it might look like good works. Today, it might look like, well, you've got to be baptized in order to be saved, or you've got to do this, or you've got to do that in order to be saved. And these things will not grant you salvation. And he says, this is a different gospel. And if it is a different gospel, even if it comes from an angel from heaven, what does he say of that gospel? It is accursed. So the apostle Paul has gotten riled up. Verse 7, he says, there is not another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and they want to distort the gospel of Christ. And that should disrupt you. That should, that should trouble you. That there are people alive today who call themselves followers of Jesus who have no problem adding to the gospel. My friends, there is no other name under heaven in which men might be saved other than the name of Jesus. Jesus himself. Jesus himself. Boasted of his exclusivity. That it is only through him can we find justification. And so, he says there's not another, another gospel. There's some who trouble you. and They want to distort the gospel. People on the outside just they're trying to supplant the work of the Apostle Paul. In other words, what happened? Who made you... Who made you swerve so quickly away from truth? What teaching? What teaching? Well, there were these folks who were in the church who were called Judaizers. Judaizers. Who were trying to push the laws back upon grace. They were trying to push the law upon the Gentile believers. As to say, that probably the number one thing would be that the Gentiles needed to be circumcised in order to be called followers of Jesus. So implementing this, uh, the, the law upon the, the Gentile. And not only that, they were trying to undermine the work of the Apostle Paul. They were trying to discredit his apostleship. So in today's vernacular, anytime somebody has a formal debate, there is this thing called an ad hominem, which is attacking the man. And so these super apostles were attacking the credibility of the Apostle Paul in order to diminish his message. And Paul says, no, we're going to set the record we're going to set the record straight. Who has twisted you so? Who has bewitched you so? Now, Paul writes this letter in order to hold high the truth of the gospel, which is that salvation comes only through the work of Jesus, Messiah. We have nothing to offer him. Nothing. Theologian and scholar Andreas Kostenberger said this, the occasion of the letter he said, the Jewish opposition had focused their campaign 
against Paul's teaching about grace. Thus, the issue of salvation by grace versus the law of Moses permeated Paul's Galatian ministry and was the crux or the body that divided Christian disciples from Galatian Jews. So Paul will, throughout the letter, you'll see it, he will address, address Jewish and Gentile believers as he continues to use harsh but needed language throughout the letter. Sometimes, sometimes we need to hear harsh language, hard words, reminders. Sometimes we need that from our brothers and sisters, just to be reminded who we are in Jesus and that we have people who love us and are concerned about our walk with the Lord. And so Paul uses these harsh words that are needed. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. He says, he says, Oh foolish Galatians. He calls them foolish. Oh foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you? Who has cast a spell on you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed and crucified. There were some people who were there who witnessed this event. It was because Paul was deeply concerned and he cared for both Jew and Gentile. and He wanted to see them grow and to make disciples. And by the way, going into a new year, that sounds like a great goal for the church. To see people grow in their walk with Jesus and then for them to make other disciples, for us to make disciples. So by the time we end in chapter 3, Paul says that there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. There's no difference between the slave or the free, the male or female, that we are all one in Jesus Christ. And there is no separation. There is no segregation. There is no cliques. There is no influential, it should be anyway, a clique here or a clique there or segregation here or this there he says we are all one in jesus christ the gift of jesus the gift of christ is for all who call upon the name of the lord to be saved and here's what paul means salvation through jesus has no room for this discrimination it has no room for this false teaching for the hebrews it was the fulfilling of a promise given to Moses that one day all the families of the earth would be blessed and his name will be Jesus. For the Gentiles, it was true enlightenment and true revelation that is given the Gentile, the Greek salt, knowledge and, and light and illumination. And so he said the true Enlightenment, the true revelation, special revelation is only given by the Holy Spirit. Because, friends, we are both sons and daughters of the Most High through the perfect gift of the Son of God. Now, try to wrap your mind around that. Now, we are called sons and daughters. The very one who created the land that we walk on the stars we see in the heaven, the host of heaven. God owns everything. In the words of O Holy Night, which is probably one of my favorite Christmas hymns of all time, 
There's a line in there that kind of made me think of Galatians. It says, the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease. In God's perfect time, the perfect time in history, God sent his only unique begotten son. And so we who were enslaved to the wickedness of the ways of the world, the rudimentary ways of this world, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, the trappings of this, this world, we have now been set free by the work of Jesus. We were lost, but now we are called by God. In verse 4, because of God's love, he sent his son. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And so right from the start, once Paul has kind of did some housework, if you will, some house cleaning, Paul uses what I like to call a gospel conjunction. I'm probably not the first person to ever use this phrase. This gospel conjunction is the word but. It is packed full of meaning. It is packed full of hope and love and peace and joy. It connects to the previous statement that you were once children of this world. You were enslaved in your lust. You were trapped in your lust. But, this gospel conjunction, but God in his goodness, but God in his perfect time, he sent his son to die for you on the cross to rise again on the third day. Now, we could finish that thought by saying in God's perfect time, he sent his son. We could say, wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Because Jesus was born of a woman. Mary, the mother of Jesus. And by the way, Mary wasn't perfect. Mary had sin. Just like every person ever born in this world, other than the person of Jesus, Mary had sin. She sacrificed as if she had sin to God. So Jesus had a human body with all of its human sufferings attached, yet he remained sinless. Listen, friends, we do not and we cannot second-guess God here, but he works out everything in his perfect time. And I imagine that all of Israel was looking for their Messiah, and I know they were. They were looking for this Messiah, whether it be political or whether it be in the, in the realm of saving from sin. They had been looking for a Messiah since the days of, from Abraham, and maybe even before that. And I'll submit to you that I use this phrase today, God's perfect timing, as just a way for us to kind of to hang our thoughts on this morning. But God does not have a calendar hanging on the wall of heaven he's not going to his calendar and saying aha I forgot about this day it crept up on me God doesn't have this time scheme this timeline you know God has to do this before he does this he sees the beginning I want you to think about something the God that we serve he sees the beginning and he sees the end in one view and he sees every single scenario that could ever exist in one single snapshot so, the next time you go doubting God's providence and where the Lord is at, as this theological term I'm about to share with you, put that in your pipe and smoke it. You think the Apostle Paul would use that? 
Now, I think if Apostle Paul was alive today, he would have used something like that. Now, listen, Church of Galatia, you put that in your pipe and smoke it. That God sees the beginning, the end, and everything in between. And all scenarios, the billions and trillions and zillions of scenarios that can happen. And he sees them in a snapshot. And we are in God's perfect world, in his perfect timing, waiting for the return of the Son of God. I think Paul would have used that phrase. God is long-suffering. He is eternally patient in all of his work. See, here's the thing about it. God could have sent his son right after the fall, right when Adam and Eve, if you will, disobeyed God, willfully disobeyed and thrust the cosmos into sin. The Lord could have sent the son immediately and said, I want you to be born of a woman And I want you to die in their place. God could have sent his son after the fall. But would our depravity be fully realized? Would we have time to realize just how wretched and how depraved we truly, truly are? And how far from God we truly are? As theologian uh, Robert Jameson had put it, he said, Had Christ come right after the fall, the enormity and the deadly fruits of sin would have never been realized fully by man. So as to feel the desperate state and the desperate need of a Savior. Sin was fully developed. Man's inability to save himself by obedience to the law, whether that of Moses or that of conscience, was completely manifested. And so again, I use this term, this phrase, so that we can get a bit of an understanding In God's perfect timing, he sent his son. Notice also in verse 4, God sent his only son, meaning that God himself will do the work. Thank the Lord for that, that it's not based upon my work to get salvation or to keep salvation. That this Messiah, Jesus, was born of a woman and under the law. The first man, Adam, was made a living soul. In the Greek, it's, also made to be born of a woman. The expression here implies a special work of God in his birth of of humankind, man, namely causing him to be conceived by the Holy Spirit. That's why we call Jesus the second Adam. Second Adam. He was a Jewish person born under the law. But we find in verse 5, came to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And in one sentence, we get this offering of salvation to the Jew and the Gentile alike, bringing to to fruition the work of the law and the adoption into the family of God by the work of Jesus. As if to further the point, the Apostle Paul says this, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Some people will translate that saying daddy, father, or something of that effect. But I believe that the Apostle Paul is using both of these endings to encapsulate all people. And at that time, all people would have been representative of the Hebrew and the Gentile or the Greek people. By faith in Jesus Christ, being being redeemed both from the bondage and the curse of the law, God, the Father, called generally the first person 
of the triune Godhead had sent forth His Son and then His Holy Spirit in this triune fashion. And by the way, the work of salvation is a triune auction. It is a triune work. God the Father has set out His law. It is written in, in the cosmos. It is, it is written. It is known. It reveals His nature. God the Father set forth His command, His law, His moral law. God the Son came to die on the cross and to redeem us of our sin. And the Holy Spirit woos us to Christ, convicts us, lets us know that we are absolute sinners. That we need salvation in Jesus. So the Holy Spirit points to Jesus, the Son. and says, listen to Him. Follow, follow Him. And so, Abba is this Aramaic word for father and father is the greek word here that is used so paul is addressing the totality of humanity in this point seeing as the the jew abba to the rest father and the exclamation is added for emphasis brothers and sisters in jesus we would have never had the privilege to call upon god as heavenly father had it not been for the work of jesus in his time and so he says, so you are no longer slave, verse 7, but a son. And if a son, you are an heir through God. The ISV, which is the International Standard Version, the translation of that verse says, so you are no longer a slave, but a child. And if you are a child, I put in the parenthetical, a child of God, then you are also an heir because of what God did. Now, Martin Luther wrote these beautiful words concerning our now position in Jesus. For the redeemed, here's our position in Christ. Martin Luther said, Whoever could believe, whoever could believe without any doubt that if it were true and certainly comprehend how immeasurably great a thing it is, that one should be God's child and an heir. How great a thing it is beyond any belief. You might be here today and the Lord Jesus is calling you to come and to repent. And that's what God always does. He calls for repentance. He's calling you to repent and to believe on Him as Lord. And He will forgive you. And forgiveness in Him and Him alone. It's not of works. It's not anything that you can do. His desire is for you to be saved, redeemed, born from above, born again, whatever terminology you want to use there, but we want to use the biblical terminology for you to be saved and to grow in your faith. We were all once children of disobedience, every one of us, whoever took a breath, we were all children of disobedience who followed the schemes of, and the lust of this world, who followed in the footsteps of our Father, who was the enemy, Satan. But our Heavenly Father, because of His love, sent forth His Son to die and to rise again so that we might be forgiven and then to be made sons and daughters in His timing. He called people unto Himself. He grafted them into His family. I want to leave you with this. Words from author and poet 
Harriet Buell. Harriet Buell wrote this beautiful piece of poetry I want to share with you in closing. It's entitled, A Child of the King. A Child of the King. And it says, My father is rich in houses and land. He holds the wealth of the world in his hands of rubies and diamonds and silver and gold. His coffers are full. He has riches untold. My father... My father's own son, the savior of men, once wandered on earth as the poorest of them. But now he is reigning forever on high, and he will give me a home in heaven by and by. I once was an outcast, a stranger on earth, a sinner by choice, an alien by birth. But I was adopted, my name was written down, an heir to the mansion, a robe and a crown. I am a child of the King, I am a child of the King, with Jesus my Savior, I am a child of the King. The question is, are you? Are you?